From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, and for Terry Gross. Today, writer Thomas Ballin talks about his diaries that were recently published in The New Yorker, titled Finding My Way and Staying Alive During the AIDS Crisis, A Diary of 1980s Manhattan. He was in his 30s then. Mallon's latest novel, Up With the Sun, is based on the life and murder of Dick Coleman, a closeted actor in the 1950s and 60s. Also, we hear from Dr. Farzan Navi. He has a new memoir about his experiences in the emergency room and his frustrations with American health care. It's called Code Gray, Death, Life, and Uncertainty in the ER. And critic-at-large John Powers reviews the film Return to Soul, which he says is a funny, melancholy, music-laced film that surprised him from start to finish. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, and for Terry Gross. Terry has today's first interview. Here she is. Living through the early years of the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, is the subject of Thomas Mallon's diaries that were recently excerpted in The New Yorker. He was in his 30s then, living in Manhattan, watching his boyfriend, friends, and fellow churchgoers get sick and die, leaving Mallon in a constant state of anxiety over if and when he'd get the death sentence. Mallon is best known for his historical novels. His new one, Up With the Sun, ends where the journal excerpts begin. The novel, which our book critic Maureen Corrigan calls Dazzling, is based on the life of a pretty obscure actor named Dick Coleman, a closeted gay actor in the 50s and 60s, who never quite made it. He was part of Lucille Ball's Desilu workshop, co-starred in the Broadway musical Seventeen, starred in a touring production of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, and starred in a short-lived sitcom called Hank, and his roles dried up. He went into the antiques business with Dolores Gray, who starred in several movie musicals. In 1980, Coleman and his boyfriend were murdered in their Manhattan apartment by robbers, a murder that made the tabloids. An earlier novel by Thomas Mallon, Fellow Travelers, is about two gay men working for the State Department during the Lavender Scare, when the anti-communist witch hunt of the 1950s was also a witch hunt for gay people who were driven out of their jobs. The novel has been adapted into a Showtime series scheduled to premiere later this year. Mallon has also written novels about Watergate, Nixon, and the couple who shared Lincoln's box seats at the Ford Theater the night he was assassinated. Thomas Mallon, welcome to Fresh Air. You're such a good writer. Thanks. (laughs) Why did you want to write about this actor, Dick Coleman? I certainly had never heard of him before. I imagine most of the people in our audience have never heard of him either. I used to watch his sitcom in 1965 to 66, which was the one year it was on. I was 13 years old at the time, and I desperately wanted to go to college. And, it was uh, called Hank, by the way, for anyone Hank. who wants and to know. Yeah. The conceit was that he played a college drop-in. He didn't have the money for tuition, but he was desperate to get an education, and so he would disguise himself uh, as other students, and he was always one step ahead of the registrar who was chasing him. It was sort of charming and preposterous, and I used to watch it, and he sort of stuck with me, and the program stuck with me, and... um, Lo and behold, you know, in 1980, he's murdered, long since out of show business, uh, murdered in Upper Manhattan, uh, the east side of Manhattan. And uh, I heard about this and um, I began squirreling away clippings many years later. And uh, 
I would set it aside. I really started to write the book in earnest around 2008, then set it aside for a decade uh, to write this political trilogy set in Washington, and uh, then went back to it. And fortunately, uh, in time enough to talk to uh, a number of people who had known him and to be able to reconstruct the story as well as I could. By the way, um, <laughs> Hank had a theme song. This had come, Hank had a theme song with a lyric written by Johnny Mercer. I mean, that's pretty classy. Um, that was about the only really distinguished <laughs> thing about the program. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, could you sing the lyric? Uh, the first line of it is, he's up with the sun and he's got the college winging as he goes about another swinging day. And the conceit was that he was constantly doing odd jobs uh, to earn money. He was raising his little sister because their parents were dead. I mean, it was kind of a comic tearjerker in some ways. And um, there was a tremendous sweetness to the character as well as a lot of gumption. Coleman in real life had plenty of gumption, but uh, I think very little sweetness. I think people might have caught that that first line of the lyric, he's up with the sun. That's where the title of your novel, Up With the Sun, comes from. Yes. Yeah. So what kind of research did you do about what it meant to be gay and closeted on Broadway and in Hollywood? You know, one of the obvious differences is like on Broadway... So many men traditionally, you know, have been gay, including some of the best, mm -hmm. like, songwriters who ever wrote for Broadway musicals. In Hollywood, I think there was a big gay closeted population, but probably not as big as on Broadway. Well, you know, um, I talked to people who had known Coleman and uh, went through any number of hundreds and hundreds of clippings and reviews and everything. And, you know, it was the time when uh, later in the 50s when he was trying to get a foothold in Hollywood, uh, he would be set up on dates, uh, you know, by his agent dates, needless to say, uh, with young women and uh, who were sort of aware or not aware that they were really, you know, functioning as beards for this. The lockdown, it, you as you say, you would think of all places, Broadway would be a place where, to a certain extent, you could be yourself. But I don't think that was um, really very true. I spoke a few years ago to Rita Gardner, who was the uh, original female lead in The Fantastics, which ran for decades and decades off-Broadway. And she uh, played the part opposite Kenneth Nelson, uh, who figures in this book. He knew Coleman, their career sort of... Um, dovetailed each other in some ways for a number of years. And Kenneth Nelson was much beloved by people who worked with him. And Rita told me that, uh, you know, she says, of course I knew Kenny was gay. And sometimes I would see him troubled or down about something. And she says, as amazing as it sounds now, you just couldn't ask. Even in the world of uh, off-Broadway theater, it was just too hot to handle back in those days. And she was uh, remembering this in her 80s, and she was just shaking her head over it. Thomas Mellon, your um, novel, Up With the Sun, ends at about the same time that your diary excerpts recently published in The New Yorker begins. And those are your diaries, excerpts of your diaries, during the AIDS epidemic, the very early days of it when you were living in Manhattan and so many people you knew had AIDS and were dying or had already died. 
so let's talk about those those diaries. Um, you were in your 30s in the 1980s when mm-hmm. AIDS was first identified and then became an epidemic. Who were you then? I was uh, an academic uh, who really wanted to be a writer. Uh, I taught at Vassar uh, for about a dozen years. I started there in my late 20s. And uh, while I was still there, I moved to New York. I I couldn't take living on campus uh, and sort of being part of the college 24-7. So I rented this ancient little walk-up apartment right near Grand Central and began trying to extract myself from academic life. And in some ways, I was living my 20s and my 30s. I even uh, wrote about that somewhere. I was um, getting some traction as a writer. I was beginning to write a lot of literary journalism. I was uh, starting to write fiction on my own. And I uh, was doing this in a way with very little risk in my life uh, compared to the way most young writers in New York have to operate. I was a tenured professor at this fancy college uh, and then you know, saw my way out of that. But whereas there was very little risk financially for me, very little risk professionally for me, I was suddenly engulfed in risk that all of my friends were. I was, um, when it came to romance, I was rather a late bloomer, but not late enough that I wasn't worried that one involvement in particular that I had had would likely render me sick at some point. And we were, uh, my friends and I, uh, we were all beset with anxieties of uh, one kind or another and uh, had to uh, make decisions uh, and consider contingencies. I remember coming across uh, something in the diary. I was writing a book about plagiarism, and uh, but I desperately wanted to write this second novel. And I was trying to think whether I dared to start the novel. And I thought, no. If I get sick, I'll probably have two years left, and I don't want to go out of the world with the two books half-written. I'll stick with the book I'm working on now, the plagiarism book, and uh, if I have to die, I will then uh, at least have that book out in the world. And that was how one thought in those days, even while at the same time I was in love with New York. I was in love with the little bit of literary progress I was making. My friends and I were having lives. We were having romance and so forth. What was it like rereading your diaries to edit them and then publish them? Because, like, you write historical novels. And what was the present to you when you were writing those journals? Mm -hmm. That's now the past. That's now history. That's an artifact of a turning point in history. Mm -hmm. So what was it like seeing your life as history? Strange. Uh, it provoked feelings of uh, embarrassment. One's diaries always do that if they have any kind of, I think, authenticity to them. Uh, tremendous feelings of gratitude that I had never gotten sick and that I was here to write all the books that came in between those diaries and today. I was struck, though, by the immediacy of them. With uh, editors at The New Yorker, uh, there was some discussion at some point about my writing a retrospective essay about the time and simply quoting from the diaries, even quoting liberally from them, but 
situating them in a sort of retrospective point of view. And I argued against this uh, because I thought if the diaries had any value at all, it was their immediacy, the sense that the person writing this did not know what was going to happen, did not know what it meant yet. And when I reread them after so many years, what struck me immediately was a kind of manic quality to them. There are entries where I am just absolutely slap happy. You know, I'm having my first author photograph taken or I'm going to some literary party that I never would have expected to be invited to years before. And the next day, all of that will come crashing down because there's been some terrible piece of AIDS news, either in the newspapers or you know, in my own world, somebody I knew was sick. And it seemed to me at the time, and the diaries brought this back to me, that I was living in a world where it was always going to be impossible to be happy for very long, that there would be these short bursts, but uh, this looming, terrible destructiveness uh, was always going to be out there. We're listening to Terry's interview with writer Thomas Mallon. His new novel, Up With the Sun, is based on the life of Dick Coleman, a little-remembered, closeted gay actor in the 50s and 60s. Mallon's diaries were recently published in The New Yorker in a piece titled Finding My Way and Staying Alive During the AIDS Crisis, A Diary of 1980s Manhattan. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break, and John Powers will review the film Return to Soul. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Thomas Mallon. His new novel, Up With the Sun, is based on the life of Dick Coleman, a little-remembered, closeted gay actor in the 1950s and 60s. The New Yorker recently published excerpts of a journal Mallon kept in the 1980s about living through the AIDS epidemic, watching his friends die, and wondering if he'd get a death sentence, too. During the epidemic, when you were so uncertain about whether you would be dead soon or not, and you didn't want to take the test to find out whether you tested positive for HIV, did you ever try to be celibate? Or, uh, I mean, like, how afraid were Very you? Very unsuccessful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, you know, you're Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. So that brings a natural amount of uh, uh, guilt about sex. <laughs> <laughs> You're gay. Add a lot more guilt to that, being Catholic. And then it's the AIDS epidemic. Add a lot of fear and maybe guilt about engaging any kind of sexual act because, you know, there's so much uncertainty, especially before anyone really knew how, mm-hmm. how to protect against AIDS or how it was spread. Can you talk about the feelings of, like, guilt or... um fear that you had when engaging in any kind of intimacy with another man? I think those were always present. They uh, they went hand in hand. Um, you thought, well, I know the score. The person I'm with knows the score and, you know, we'll protect each other. But uh, we can't stop living. And I saw a, a good friend of mine, Greg Ullman, who I saw a lot in the 80s, uh, and I saw him um, last fall. We were talking about this when the diaries were about to come out. And we talked about how we did our best to go on living and uh, to just somehow go forward and assume that things might work out right. But 
life's contradictions and um, life's ambivalences, you never get rid of them. And, uh, you know, I I was – I am a very lapsed Catholic. If I lapsed any further, I don't know what (laughs) circle of hell I'd be in. But I I still missed my faith. To this day, I miss my faith in that it it was – it was being gay that drove me away from the church. Uh, there was very little way in which one could reconcile those two things and be comfortable. I was also politically was always much more conservative than my friends, particularly where foreign policy was concerned, things like that. And it was very, very difficult for me to be politically conservative. I was never a social conservative for all the obvious reasons. But like Timothy Laughlin in Fellow Travelers, I grew up believing Catholic. I grew up very much an anti-communist. And I, as I grew older, grew through adolescence and into adulthood, I saw no reason why those three things should be incompatible. I really didn't. And uh, and yet, if you were a believer in a somewhat conservative worldview geopolitically um, – That was a very, very difficult political position to have when the very people you admired for their anti-communism and, uh, you know, uh, their stand for liberty did not extend to gay people. Let Uh, let me stop you here for a second because my question had to do with – did you try to be celibate? And we're talking about politics. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. We're talking about politics now. And how your circle of friends was not conservative, how hard it was to be mm-hmm. conservative politically, not socially, but politically. Did that interfere with your romantic life? Oh, I can remember lots of arguments and debates, uh, <laughs> certainly. And I mean, some of them continue to this day. And, you know, being a historical novelist, you get to revisit some of these things. And I, I wrote a book called Finale which was set uh, during the second term of Ronald Reagan's presidency. A lot of it revolves around the famous summit at Reykjavik with Mikhail Gorbachev. And there's a character there, Anders Little, fictional character, who is engaged in national security matters and is uh, very much um, a cold warrior of my, my age. But he's also coming to terms with being gay, and he is struggling uh, with the fact that he is having to work in an administration which is not doing anything for people that he loves and people who are in trouble and people who are even facing death. And I think that that, you know, has been sort of a motif in my life. I've um, argued with my conservative friends that they're Positions on certain social issues are beyond the pale, unacceptable to me. Uh, And I've certainly argued uh, with my gay friends that I wasn't comfortable with a one-size-fits-all politics, that my politics were a bit different from that. I I was still very much Timothy Laughlin in Fellow Travelers. You know, E.M. Forster talks in one of his essays about not liking 100 percenters, and uh, that's – something that's always stuck with me. I think that the political divide that exists today, which I can't imagine really writing about in fiction, 
is made worse by the fact that everybody is so dug in that no one ever surprises anyone else with their politics. If somebody expresses their politics, uh, you know, in personal conversation, you sort of, if they express one piece of their politics, you sort of infer the whole rest of it from what they've said. And uh, the middle ground has um, just kind of disappeared beneath our feet. I want to get back to what you experienced personally in in the 80s. Um, You know, you write in your diaries, I always fall for the truly cold, cold people, cold men, (laughs) because I decide their reserve and awkwardness is really bottled up warmth that they're waiting for me to release, an act for which they'll repay me with extravagant love. I think that is a really common thing. Thinking that somebody who's cold or unemotional on the surface is just like hiding their sensitivity that's underneath, and that once you kind of connect with that sensitivity, they'll open up and be really warm and appreciate that you allowed them to do it. I think that's one of the passages in the diary that um, has a certain universality to it. I mean, I think that that's um, a common thing among homosexuals, among heterosexuals. I think a lot of heterosexual women might recognize themselves in that passage, uh, particularly from, you know, what's now a couple of generations ago. The complexities of love uh, are uh, more universal than not. And uh, if they weren't, there wouldn't be anything like fiction. Gay people couldn't read straight novels Straight people couldn't read gay novels. Uh, A certain degree of identification has been a part of fiction from the very beginning, from when the novel starts in the 18th century. You have to see yourself to some degree in at least some of the characters in the book. But often you see yourself in characters who are nothing like you in terms of gender, circumstance, whatever. But there's some emotional aspect of them that allows you to say, that's me as well. So when you're writing historical fiction, um, let let me put it this way. One of the problems I sometimes have with like biopics and, you know, historical movies and historical novels is that you come away from it feeling like you've really learned a lot about the past. At the same time, you don't know what's fiction and what's fact in that piece of work that you've just come away from. How do you deal Mm -hmm. with that as a writer? Like, what are your thoughts about that as somebody who's actually creating the historical fiction? Like, with Dick Kalman, it didn't really, it wasn't really an issue for him because I had no idea who he was. (laughs) I was just like, (laughs) I just, like, let myself enjoy the book. I once wrote an essay called The Historical Novelist's Burden of Truth. And it is a very tricky business because if you are dealing with real people, you are necessarily going to ascribe to them opinions, feelings, thoughts that they may have had or may not have had. And one of the purposes of historical fiction, I think, is that it does allow a writer to speculate, to imagine. I mean, if you're writing a book about Watergate, as I did, a novel about Watergate, um, You operate differently from a historian. The historian would have to say, 
It is not implausible to think that at this moment, Mr. Nixon may have thought, if you're a historical novelist, you just have him go ahead and think it. It's the way you dramatize, the way you imagine things. But I think ultimately it comes down to truth in labeling. A novel is a novel. I've very often had people write to me and come up to me and very kindly say, I learned so much history from your book. And I always want to say, be careful, because uh, by the time I get to the end of one of these novels, there are certain things in them that I can't quite remember. Did I make that up or did that come from the record? Oh, really? Uh, That's a strange feeling to mm -hmm. have. Fiction is fiction. I mean, I, there's, a, there's a caveat I've applied uh, to the prefaces or afterwards of a number of my uh, historical novels, which is that nouns always trump adjectives. And it's important to remember in the phrase historical fiction, which is which. Fiction is the noun, which means that historical novels are always fiction. Uh, historical is the adjective. The history is weaker than the fiction. Don't trust the history. Read the fiction. Thomas Mallon, a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Same here. Thank you, Terry. Thomas Mallon's latest novel is Up With the Sun. He spoke with Terry Gross. Excerpts of his diaries were recently published in The New Yorker in a piece titled Finding My Way and Staying Alive During the AIDS Crisis, A Diary of 1980s Manhattan. In the new movie Return to Seoul, a young Korean woman raised by adoptive parents in France goes back to the country of her birth. The film was written and directed by Davy Shu and is now playing around the country. Our critic-at-large John Powers says the story and lead actress took him to interesting places he never expected to go. In his great novel, If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, Italo Calvino makes a whimsical list of the many different kinds of books. One of them is called Books That You've Read Before They've Even Been Written, meaning they're so predictable that you know every beat in advance. This same genre thrives at the movies, where I often feel that I'm once again viewing a story I've been watching my whole life. That's why I was so excited by Return to Soul, a funny, melancholy, music-laced film that surprised me from start to finish. Written and directed by a Cambodian-French director, Davy Shu, the movie starts off like a sentimental fish-out-of-water story about a young woman's search for her roots. But it quickly becomes clear that we're seeing something stranger and stronger. First-time actress Park Ji-min stars as Frédéric Freddy Benoit, who was sent off from Korea to France as a baby and raised by a white French couple. Now 25, Freddy feels herself French. She doesn't speak any Korean, and a photo of her birth mom is all she has of Korea. But her life takes a strange turn when a typhoon changes her travel plans mid-trip, and she winds up in Seoul. She's not exactly sure what she's going to do there, besides wander around in her headphones, drink too much, and hook up with cute strangers. She's not in search of her Korean origins, but many of the people she meets in Korea want her to be. It's as if they want her to behave like the heroine of a soppy immigrant drama about getting in touch with her family past. And because Freddie is aimless, she does wind up at the adoption agency that sent her and countless other Korean babies to the West. And this agency does put her in contact with her boozy birth father, a touching, absurd figure wonderfully played by Oh Kwang Rock, who wants her to move in with his family. 
Their first encounter, complete with weeping grandma and an aunt who erratically translates their conversation, is a triumph of droll awkwardness. Although her dad dreams of reconciliation, Freddie is cussedly, almost seethingly willful. She's a born refuser who bridles at people telling her what she ought to do. Early on, she's out drinking with two nice young Koreans who speak French. When she starts to pour herself a glass of soju, they stop her and say that in Korea, pouring your own drink is considered an insult to your companions. She registers the point, then promptly fills her glass with soju and swallows it down. The rest of the movie unfolds in similar fashion, with Freddie never quite doing what we or those around her expect. With its shifting palate and attentive eye, Shu's style respects her unruliness. Rather than weave itself into a tidy narrative complete with tailor-made epiphanies, Return to Soul lurches through eight years in a series of sharp, unpredictable episodes. Along the way, Freddie gets involved with a loose older Frenchman, takes a job selling weapons, and half-heartedly seeks her birth mother. Freddie is clearly searching for an identity, yet neither she nor the movie defines identity in terms of race, nationality, or family. Notions that Shu, himself a cultural outsider, thinks too broad to capture the multiplicity of lived experience. Although he has no ties to Korea, Shu does have imagination and empathy, and he clearly understands where Freddie is coming from. She's caught in a life of profound dislocation and is struggling to find herself if it's even possible to pin down the self in such a way. Whether cutting her hair or getting involved with a new man, she keeps reinventing herself. Such a story could easily be frustrating in its lack of closure, but I was held wrapped by Park's bristling performance as Freddie, one made all the more astonishing because she's never acted before. Wow, does she have presence. Shu's camera carefully studies her features, which always contain something deep and wild and unknowable. The director, Claire Denis, whose work this movie sometimes recalls, remarked that Park seems to resist being caught by Shu's camera. She's right, and Park's resistance gives the movie its singular, mysterious edge. In fact, her work here is more fascinating than any of this year's Oscar nominees for acting. Jean-Luc Godard is famous for saying that all it takes for a movie is a girl and a gun. Carried aloft by its star, Return to Soul proves that sometimes you don't even need the gun. John Powers reviewed the new film Return to Soul. Coming up, we'll hear from Dr. Farzan Navi. His new memoir, Code Gray, is about his experiences in the emergency room and his frustrations with American health care. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. In the first year of the pandemic, more than 3,600 American health care workers died after being infected with the COVID-19 virus. Our guest, emergency room physician Farzan Navi, says that was a time when he and his colleagues were improvising means to treat patients and protect themselves. He writes in his new book that public health officials and hospital administrators were, like frontline medical workers, in over their heads and not quite sure what to do. For a time, some hospitals banned physicians and nurses from wearing masks at work, fearing it would frighten patients more than reassure them. Most of Navi's memoir, though, focuses on his life as an ER doc and the healthcare system in pre-COVID times. He writes that COVID was not a wrecking ball for healthcare delivery, but a magnifying glass, illuminating flaws already inherent in the system. 
He describes systemic failures in American health care and dilemmas that physicians face in treating and communicating with patients and their families. Farzan Navi is an ER physician at Concord Hospital in New Hampshire and a clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine at the Dartmouth Medical School. Before that, he worked in hospitals in Manhattan. He's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other publications, and has testified before a congressional committee on health care reform. His new book is Code Gray, Death, Life, and Uncertainty in the ER. Well, Farzan Navi, welcome to Fresh Air. Uh, thank you for having me, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. You write about death and how physicians deal with it. Um, I've asked you to, to, to read a little selection from us here. This is in the middle of the book. You want to just share this with us? Absolutely. Upon learning that I'm an emergency medicine doctor, people often ask how I deal with encountering death. It must be stressful. How do you do it? It's a difficult question to answer. I usually shrug it off. You get used to it, I say. That is a lie. You don't get used to it. I have been intimately involved in a wide variety of deaths. I have experienced grandparents dying of cancer and heart disease, and have seen children die of illness and injury. I have filled out the morbid paperwork required after a successful suicide attempt. I have informed a pair of French tourists that the precarious selfie they warned their daughter not to take would be the last picture they would have of her. I have told an intoxicated driver of a rollover car crash that he would be spending the remainder of spring break and beyond without his best friend. I have never gotten used to any of it. Hmm. It's something that's a part of your life. You mention in the book that your father-in-law uh, became ill with COVID and had stopped breathing at once. He was not near you, and he had been picked up by an ambulance crew that had inserted a breathing tube. You called the ER where he was being treated to check on him, and when a clerk answered the phone, you knew immediately you write, without her telling you, that he had died. How did you know? When you work in the ER, you kind of get used to every little detail and every little tone of voice. Um, and I remember our beginning of our conversation was normal. Uh, she was a little bit hurried. Uh, she was helpful, uh, but she wanted to get to know kind of why I was calling. And I told her the name of who I was calling for. Uh, and immediately once she heard that name, she slowed down her cadence and she took the time to speak with me. She didn't necessarily get kinder. She was nice from the beginning, but she just slowed down to a degree that I knew that that's the kind of slowing down that you get on the other end of the phone when someone's died. Um, I know her job. I know what she's doing. She's sitting by a computer reviewing a list of patients. Uh, and she has a lot of stuff going on and she's very busy. Uh, and if it's a patient with an ankle sprain or with, you know, even a heart attack, you get that information and you look it up and you kind of say, all right, I'll get back to you in a little bit. But but when she looked at the board, uh, I presume, and she saw that we were calling for my wife's father and he died, she, she just changed her tone completely. And it was very evident to me of exactly what happened on the other end of that line. You know, you know you're right that you've never gotten used to death, despite being around it so much. And people wonder how you deal with it. Um, how do you? People give all sorts of answers for this. Uh, and I think that the honest, honest truth of what we do is that we kind of just ignore it. We, we pretend that it doesn't exist and we don't really acknowledge it. And that's our culture. I, I think medicine is very... Um, apprenticeship kind of culture where we see people before us and we emulate the way they do things. And I think 
for better or for worse, the way it's always been, we kind of just ignore it. Uh, and I think there's a lot of people out there who say that this kind of compartmentalization and detachment is necessary, that if you, you get too close to um, those experiences and take them too seriously, that, that you're going to get too attached and you can't perform your job. But, but I think that's a misread. Uh, I think that's certainly a coping mechanism, but I think it's a poor coping mechanism. I, I, I don't think you could pretend to be unaffected by this stuff. Um, and one of the reasons I wrote this book was to kind of explore that for myself and for others uh, to share in that experience. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, you say that ignoring it is, oh, I guess, a way to, to function and get back in there and handle the next day, but in the, is in the long run not healthy. And I'm wondering what the alternative is. I mean, writing a book for you was helpful, but that's, <laughs> not everybody's going to do that. You're not going to do it, you know, all the time. Yeah. Is there well, an alternative? Well, I, I, I could share an experience I had, actually. It was about three, four years ago now. Um, and uh, it's an example of how we can do better. So I, in the ER, when, when someone dies, um, traditionally, we call a time of death and I just can't overstate it. It's just an awkward, strange circumstance. We call a time of death. Everyone kind of just shuffles about and makes awkward eye contact. And then we just walk away uh, and nothing happened. And that's always felt so unsatisfying to me because you're part of this very important thing. You don't know the person. You're anonymous. You might not even know their name, but they died. And it's a human being that died. And we do nothing. Um, and I never did any better. I didn't have an answer to this question of how we could do better if you asked me five, six years ago. But then uh, one time I was an attending physician. I was supervising one of the residents that I worked with. Um, and at the end of a code, someone had died. We called a time of death. And he he just spoke up on his own. Um, and he said, hey, I just hope everyone can stay in the room for another 30 seconds. Um, I just want to appreciate that a human being has died. Uh, and what he said was word for word. Uh, he said, we didn't know this gentleman. Um we don't know his name, but just as we have people in our lives that we love uh, and people who love us, we can assume that this gentleman had people in his life that he loved and people who loved him. So in recognition of that and in recognition that someone has died, let's just have a moment of silence. And the whole thing lasted maybe 15 seconds. Um, but it just transformed the way I experienced those things from then on out. Uh, and I copied him. He, he was my resident. I was supposed to be a supervisor teaching him, but I took that from him. And since then, I've been doing that uh, every time that uh, someone dies in the ER. And every time I do that, I have people come up to me, nurses that I work with, technicians, respiratory therapists, and they say, thank you for what you're doing. So you can tell that there's this unmet need of how we deal with things in the ER. Uh, and I don't know that I have all the answers of all the things we could do to make this better. But from this experience that I had, I know that there are ways that we can do better. And I think the first thing we need to do is start talking about it to see how we can kind of have that conversation and begin this process. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, I mean, everybody is so busy. They have other tasks to get to. But taking a moment to just acknowledge this pain makes a difference. Huge difference, yes. There are plenty of cases in this book where you find... Uh, just frustration with the way our healthcare system works or does not work. Uh, you know, one interesting story you tell is of a woman who comes into the emergency room. Um, this is not during the COVID days, but she, she comes into the emergency room and she wants chemotherapy treatments and she knows she has cancer. And in fact, she has detailed instructions from the oncologist who's been treating her. Why was she coming to the emergency room? Well, she came to the emergency room because her oncologist had stopped treating her. <laughs> so uh, what her story was, she, she was a young lady. She was diagnosed with cancer. 
Uh, and then she started getting treatment for her cancer with an oncologist uh, at a private, uh, not-for-profit, but private institution. And then what happened was that because of her chemotherapy and her cancer treatments, she took too many sick days from her job, so she ended up losing her job. Then she lost uh, her health insurance because of losing her job. Um, so her chemo, her oncologist wasn't able to see her anymore because she didn't have insurance anymore. So he or she referred this patient to our hospital, which was a public hospital where I was working at the time. Uh, she didn't understand that she had to go see an oncologist, so she just came to the emergency room. Um, and I thought there was a misunderstanding. I saw her and I said, you know... I'm an ER doctor. I, I, if I could treat you, I, I absolutely would. I just don't have these tools. I don't have that capability. Um, and then we ended up kind of going from there, but that's how she ended up in the emergency room with me. But it's interesting, though. I mean, it would take her, I, I think she said, weeks or months to get an appointment with an oncologist. And she knew that if you come to the ER, they have to treat you, right? I mean, so she figured, hey, <laughs> you can't send me away. That was what she told us, yes. She said that I, she was familiar that there was some law out there that if you are uninsured under any circumstances, you come to an emergency room, we have to treat you. And she's right, except the caveat to that, which kind of is what made me so uncomfortable at that time, was that she, she had a great understanding of the situation, except that what we have to do in an ER is stabilize you, not necessarily treat you. So it, you have to be evaluated by law, uh, and whatever we can do to stabilize you, we have to do. In the eyes of this legislation, she was stable. Uh, so she had cancer and she was dying, but she was dying slowly. She wasn't dying quickly. So she was technically stable. Uh, and it became this kind of horrible thing that I had to explain to her that, yes, you're protected by this law, and yes, you have cancer, and yes, you're dying, but I can't help you. Uh, and not that I don't want to again. It's just that I, I, I'm not an oncologist. I don't have chemotherapy. I'm not trained for that. I don't know how to do that. Um, and in the eyes of the law, you're stable. Um, and she kind of got a little upset, rightfully so. And she said, you know, if, if I was dying quickly, you had to take care of me. But because I'm dying slowly, all bets are off. Um, and I had kind of no choice but to agree with her. Yeah. So what does that do to you emotionally? I mean, how do you... What did you say? Well, it, 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 it's terrible. I mean, I think there's a lot of injustices in our healthcare system, and we see this stuff all the time. Uh, and it's funny because I think when you're in med school, you're told by your professors all the time that you're going to be entrusted with uh, these important situations with your patients, and you have to really value uh, that trust that patients put in you. But But they don't tell you about the opposite. They don't tell you about the shame uh, of being a doctor sometimes, the shame of being a part of a system where you're complicit in these problems and you can't do anything to help people that, despite seeing them and knowing that they need your help and the system is not serving them. Right. Uh, one other case. You, you mentioned a, a time when a patient came in and it had serious complications from having taken antibiotics that they had bought, I think, on a pet supplies website. Mm -hmm. And you called poison control. And the guy who answered immediately had a guess about what kind of antibiotics. <laughs> Share this with us. Well, yeah. So uh, the patient, um, for a lot of reasons, she thought she was ill. She didn't have health insurance. And she thought that she needed antibiotics. So she went ahead and took pet antibiotics. And I went to report this to the poison control center who keep uh, logs of this kind of uh, thing to protect the public. Uh, and I told him, you know, you're never going to believe this, but this patient took pet antibiotics. And, and far from not believing me, he responded immediately. He says, let me guess, is it the fish formulation? 
And I said, how do you know? And he said, uh, whenever people have problems with this and they overdose, it's always with the fish formulation. What he told me was that people take veterinary antibiotics all the time and uh, he gets cases reported about that routinely. But when you take dog or cat antibiotics, people usually do fine because they're pills and they're the right dosage. Whereas fish formulation is just highly dense, highly concentrated because you're supposed to dissolve it into a fish tank so that the, the fish can eventually drink it when they have their water. So people who take fish antibiotics generally, they overdose by an order of magnitude. So it was kind of shocking how often it must happen. Right. And to get the dog or cat antibiotics, they actually need a prescription from a vet, whereas right. for the fish antibiotics, they can just order them. What kind of complications does one risk by taking fish antibiotics? Well, so this lady, she took, actually, I remember the specific antibiotic was erythromycin. She took fish erythromycin, and she had some neurological side effects. So she had something called ataxia, which is a, a change in your balance in your gait. So she lost her balance, and she had nystagmus, so her eyes were twitching, and she couldn't walk well. Uh, and, and the grand irony, and, and you can't make this stuff up, is just so terrible. She, she came in, and the whole reason she had taken the fish antibiotics was that she had a job interview coming up. Uh, so she took the uh, fish antibiotics, she overdosed, and she had some balance issues, and she fell down a staircase during her job interview. Um, I just can't identify where she went wrong, right? Where someone would argue that she should have done better. She, he, here we have this lady trying to do everything right. She was working hard to try to get a job so that she could get health insurance, but she didn't at the time. So she did the best that she could to try to get herself a job in health insurance. And yet even that process caused her to have some CNS, uh, central nervous system toxicity, and then fall down a staircase and she ended up in the ICU. You know, at the end of the book, you say that there are a lot of these tough questions about patients and their treatment and how you talk to them and their families. And you write that you don't have a chapter where you can answer these questions. I mean, that these are unsolved dilemmas that you say you hope you provide we, your readers, with a measure of discomfort so we can consider some of life's important questions yeah. um, that d defy easy answers. I mean, I that makes sense. These aren't easy questions. They aren't easy answers. I'm wondering, has writing these stories and the process of considering these dilemmas, do you think, made you a better doctor? I think it's made me a better doctor and a better person. <laughs> I think uh, the, these stories live within us, whether we acknowledge them or not, and they percolate and they they come out in different ways. And I think really sitting down and processing them and kind of getting a better understanding of them uh, has made me get a better understanding of life itself. Um, I think what the funny thing is that the, these stories are, it's an exploration of life in the ER, but really they're just an exploration of life in general. Uh, the ER is just life in its most extreme. Uh, there's nothing unique about it, right? Uh, I think the ER is this fascinating place where it, it exists as a contradiction. Uh, it's this place where there's a whole team of people who are ready, willing, and able to take care of you at any time of day, no matter when you want to come. And yet no one ever wants to go there, <laughs> right? We stick you with needles. Uh, there's long wait times. You, you can't get any rest. It's America, so it's expensive. So it's this funny place where the only people that will ever come there are people that don't want to be there. And we see extremes as a result. So we see medical, ethical, social, and healthcare extremes. And, and kind of going through that process and understanding those things helps you understand how you feel about things in life in general. Well, Dr. Farzan Navi, um, thanks for all your good work, and, and thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much, Dave. It was a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it.
Farzan Navi is an emergency room doctor at Concord Hospital in New Hampshire. He spent the early months of the COVID pandemic as an emergency room physician in New York. His new memoir is Code Gray, Death, Life, and Uncertainty in the ER. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yakundi, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. <laughs>